Well, we come now to a time in our service where we turn to God's Word, uh, and we'll be looking at uh, the Gospel of Mark again. We'll be looking particularly at the Lord's Supper. Uh, but before we get to that, uh, Mark chapter 14, verses 22 to 25, I just want to highlight something that we read earlier in the passage, and it'll come back up in the sermon, but just with regard to, to things... <laughs> That are going on in our world, in our nation, particularly uh, this past week and the ransacking of our nation's capital, I was struck. I'm just, I think each week it feels like I'm more struck by how broken and divided we are as a nation. It, it almost, it feels as if there's no hope. I don't know if you feel that. I feel that. There's just like nothing can bring our nation back together. And I feel it tearing at the fabric of the church to a degree as well. I feel that in talking with folks and in just just the, the, the deep anguish and angst. Um, and I was reading in preparation for the sermon this week uh, these passages concerning the Lord's Supper. And I think, and we'll get to it in the sermon, but there was one particular aspect of the Lord's Supper that I find to be most comforting. In this time, and it's found if you go back to your call to word, or, um, to the uh, uh, to the scripture reading. If you go to the scripture reading, it's found in the congregational portion that we read. Maybe you didn't notice it or focus on it when we were reading it, but it'll come back up in a minute. But I just wanted to highlight this: the Lord Jesus is talking about Himself as the bread of life, and He says, "The cup of blessing that we bless is is it not?" a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And then it says, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Later in the Gospel of John, we'll look at it in John chapter 17, John, Jesus, it's right after the Lord's Supper. Jesus will go and he'll pray to his heavenly father. And in that prayer, he'll describe the unity that he has with us, that he has with the father and that we have with one another. But more than that, it'll talk about how that unity, as we are partakers of this body together, how that unity bears witness to the power of Christ to the world. This is a call for us. As we look at a world torn asunder, it is a call for us to come together. And this is the place that we do it today at the table. We come together as God's people who are united to Christ by faith and united to one another in love. And so with that, with tears, that's my plea today. Before we get to the reading of God's word, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we cry out. For the sake of our nation, we cry out uh, to you. Um, but for the sake of your church, your bride, your body, we cry out. Bind us together in love. We know in eternity we are bound forever. But Lord, this side of glory, we often find ourselves at odds. And so, Lord, we want to reflect your glory now, here, Help us. 
as we study your word today and as we look at the table that you've set before us, help us to reflect that oneness as we eat and as we look uh, to you, our Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name and ask for your help. Amen. Well, we are coming to study the Lord's Supper, and we're going to be looking at Mark, uh, and I didn't read it before the reading of God's Word, but we prayed for it. So we'll read uh, Mark here, chapter 14. This is uh, the institution of the Lord's Supper. Last week, we looked at how they set the table, uh, how they prepared it, and then we looked at the the, the, the woe to Judas who would betray uh, Jesus, but today we're just going to be focusing in on the Lord's Supper. So with that, hear God's word, verse 22 of Mark chapter 14. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. The word of the Lord. Amen. So I don't know, for those of you who have been in church for a while. I don't know what your experience was when you first came to the Lord's Supper, to the table. For some of you, it might have been later in life when you were an adult and you had time and uh, to reflect on what you were doing. But nevertheless, I think at any point in our life, when we first come to the table, there's a little bit of, I don't know if you want to say anxiety. I don't know if that's the right word, but uncertainty may be the better word. In that we want to understand, okay, what is it that I'm doing? What's going on here? And how is this beneficial to me, right? Now, we might have some sense of it, right? Because we understand that it represents Christ's crucifixion, his death, and his breaking of his body, and his pouring out of his blood for us on, on account of our sins. We, 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 I think believers who come to the table generally understand that, But then we just wonder, what are we to do as we take it? What are we to think? What are we to feel as we take it? What what is it all about? And as we grow, we get bits and pieces here and there. We hear different things and we kind of piece things together. But not very frequently do we take the time out to say, let's look at this thing in depth. And that's what I want to do today. I want us to kind of dive down into what this is that we do week in, week out. So that's my goal uh, today, to encourage us in our faith, to grow us in our understanding of our receiving of the Lord's Supper, and and to help us as we come together uh, to commune with the Lord and with one another. Um, And so to do that, I think the most basic aspect of this table is it's a coming to Jesus, and it's a call to come to him. And so that's my my main idea today is just that we would come to Jesus when we come to the table. And we're going to look at this in two ways. We're going to look at it from sort of a grand biblical perspective, like a what we would call biblical theological perspective, where we're looking at it, what is this table in reference to all of Scripture? Uh, and we won't spend as much time on this, but I do want to sort of draw out the biblical uh, sort of story that's in this table. 
And then the second thing that I want us to consider is maybe more in depth, what it is actually signifying to us, what it symbolizes, what is going on in the meal and how we might appropriate it as we take it. And what does that look like? So we're going to look at those two things. First, come to Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then secondly, we're going to look at more in depth, come to Jesus by partaking of him, spiritually speaking, by partaking of him. Okay. So those are the two, two places we want to go today. So first, come to Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Last week when we looked at this, we associated this with Passover. You'll remember Jesus and his disciples had gone uh, to Jerusalem to celebrate this very festival. And as they had gone out to sacrifice the lamb, the disciples had asked, okay, where are we going to eat our meal together? And Jesus instructs them, you'll remember all of this. And I was trying to show you in that sermon how Jesus was in fact taking the Passover meal and applying it to himself as the Passover lamb. And if you'll remember, Passover was a looking back at the, the story of Exodus, in particular at that last of all the, the plagues where the, the, the Lord, through Moses, told uh, Moses to tell everyone, the people of God, to take a lamb without blemish, year old, to sacrifice it, to take the blood and to paint it on the doorpost and the lintels of the house that the angel of death that was coming to take the firstborn male of Egypt would not take the firstborn of God's people. And so they did as they were preparing for a journey, eating a meal that was with their sandals and staff in hand and ready to go. Um, and then the Lord led them out, of course. Um, it was about the exodus and about God's delivering them from, from that uh, slavery to Egypt. But we also talked about how that delivery from Egypt was, in fact, symbolic of the delivery from sin, and that the blood of that lamb was not just dealing with Egypt and the situation there, but it was a picture of the necessity of the Lamb of God to come and take away our sins, to cover us, that the angel of death might not come to us. And so we come to the cross, the Passover lamb, the lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world was looking not just back at Exodus, but forward to Jesus. And so Jesus now comes and he says, you know, I am the bread of life, but you'll remember what John the Baptist called him. He said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so Jesus went to the cross Why did he have to go to the cross? Romans chapter 3, 10 and 12 to 12 say it quite clearly. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And this, of course, is in relation to the question, okay, what about the the Jews and what about the Gentiles? We know the Gentiles are outside of God's covenant, but what about the Jews? Don't they have standing before God? And Paul is saying, no, no one is justified before God. All are sinners 
Not one of us can stand before him. And so, what do we need? We need a propitiation. That's a big word, but it's in Scripture. What is it? A propitiation. Propitiation is the taking away of God's wrath from us and putting it and placing it on God. It is taking that which we deserve and placing it on the Lord. And we see this following in Romans chapter 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Righteous, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. His death for ours. To be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. Did you notice that? That's an interesting use of that word. Before, in the Old Testament, he passed over former sins. Was it because that blood of the lamb was was sufficient? No, Paul says, no, it's because of his forbearance. He was waiting for the one to come who could pay for our sins, who could take upon himself the wrath of God for us so that we might be justified. And he goes on and he says, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just, right? Punishing sin. And the justifier declaring us righteous, not because of anything in us, but because of the blood of that lamb that takes away the sins of the world. Transformative, going from the Passover, right? The, the lamb's blood that looked at the deliverance from Egypt, all that symbolizing and looking forward to Jesus, the one who would come and would be the one who would Cover us, justify us, cleanse us, forgive us, declare us righteous, not because of any righteousness in us, but because of the righteousness of Christ counted towards us. But the story doesn't stop there. The story of the supper doesn't stop there. This meal that we are taking, that we come together, is part of this grand narrative. It looks back to that ancient ritual, the Passover, but it's a new ritual, and it's looking forward to a ritual that is to come. You'll notice in Scripture that Mark says, or Jesus says in the Gospel of Mark, truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This looks forward to another time. If we were to go all the way to the end of the story, you go to the the end of the Bible, to the book of Revelation in chapter 19, there's a picture that's painted for us. I want to read it to you. After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. It's that language again, right? For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. We're talking about the evil one. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her, the evil one, goes up forever and ever. 
And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. So this is a, it's a celebration event because, because Jesus has come and he's conquered. That's the picture here in Revelation 19. Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you servants, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. Why? For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And the bride has made herself ready. We'll come back to this a little bit later, but I just want to highlight this in the grand scheme of things. It was granted to her that to clothe herself in fine linen and bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. When we come to the table, when we, when we feast together, we're not only drawing from that great Old Testament story of redemption found in Exodus and looking forward to Christ, but we're looking at Christ and his work on the cross. But not only that, we're looking forward to another meal when we will gather together and we will feast with the Lamb as his bride, perfected and beautiful. It's this grand story. This meal is meant to be as part of that story. So we're going to look more specifically at this meal. But as we think about this supper, I want us to consider who we are and who this Lamb of God is. Right? So it's a meal. It's this grand meal. This starts, actually starts well before Exodus, it goes all the way back to the garden. Um, you'll, you'll, well, we won't go there, but it goes all the way back to the garden. We could spend some time kind of tracing this food and provision story throughout all of Scripture. But, but who is the Lamb and who are we in relationship to Him? I think those are questions that we need to wrestle with. Paul warns the Corinthian church this way as he addresses them, as they consider the table. He said, this is my, when he had given thanks and he broke it, he said, this is my body. This is what uh, he's quoting here from the Gospels. Do this in remembrance me. In the same way also, he took the cup after the supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. But Paul goes on and he says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of Christ, of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. Then, and so eat of, let him examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. All right. So we've got this grand story, and somehow, as believers, we're fitting ourselves into this story by eating this meal. But then there's this warning here. What is this? What does it mean that we ought to discern the body? 
Well, I think there are two possible references. The body could be the church. Paul uses that language to talk about the church. The body could be Christ's body, his physical body. And in one verse, or in two verses, he uses this language to talk about both the body, the church, and the physical body of Christ. Chapter before the verses that I just read, it says, the cup of the blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? Speaking particularly of the Lord. The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Right? Body of Christ. Speaking physically. But in the very next verse, he says this. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. All right, so Rob, where are you going with all of this? That's a good question. Um, why are you telling us this? What I'm trying to do for us is to say, okay, there's this grand story that starts way back, and we are participators in it. We're looking back at the work of Christ, and we're looking forward to Revelation. But who is allowed to come to the table? Who's allowed to be a participant in this story? Paul says, one who discerns the body of Christ. And I think it's really significant that we consider what that means before we come to the table. We need to understand the nature of the meal, what it signifies with regard to Christ and his sacrifice. And we ought to understand what it means to be in relationship with other believers, with the church. Now, I realize I haven't described the meal yet. That's purposeful. But I do want us to ask the question, do I know Christ? Do I understand the sacrifice? Who is this Passover lamb? And what has he done for me? Am I in relationship with him and with his body, the church? Do I discern these things clearly? If you're sitting here this morning and the answer to those questions is no, then I want you to spend the time as we look at this meal, I want you to spend the time thinking about that grand story, thinking about how you fit into it, thinking about what it means to taste and to see and to know the living God through Christ. But when we come to the table in a little bit, I want you to let the meal pass you by. But I want you to lay hold of Christ by faith. I want you to hunger after the meal. It's been my experience working with adults uh, that who've moved toward public profession of faith um, that the closer they get to profession of faith, the more distance they put between them and the table. It's funny, it, when they first initially sort of say, I, I think I'm a Christian, they immediately want to come to the table. But as they start to examine what it means to profess faith and come into fellowship and to acknowledge their sin and to recognize Jesus as their Savior, the more distance they put. They're like, wait a minute, I'm not ready for that meal. I haven't yet done those things. It's just an observation, and your experience might be different. You see, they perceive the seriousness of the judgment, that it compounds sin to partake of the meal without discerning and understanding. So, baptism, the picture of God's sovereign, regenerating, cleansing work, this is the 
the way in which people enter into relationship, but the meal is that ongoing confirmation of our interest in, our participation in Christ and his church. It's a family meal meant for strengthening us, not just as individuals, but together. It's for nourishment as his people. So I say all that so that you, as you consider this, and this may be the first time that you've thought about coming to the table, I want you to consider what does it mean to be part of that family, part of that story, part of that grand narrative? Lay hold of Christ by faith. But it brings up a secondary question. What about our children? And this is a big can of worms we could talk about for a long time. But what about our children? I want to say briefly that the same thing applies to them. They ought to be able to discern the body. This sacrament is distinct from their baptism. The baptism points to that sovereign, regenerating, initiatory work of God in Christ. It is a passive thing. When we think about baptism, it is about something being done to us because it pictures that sovereign grace being poured out on us, not according to anything that we've done. And so when I hold a baby in my arms and I baptize them, I'm saying, Lord, do your work. This baby now enters into relationship with the church, not by commitment of themselves or anything they've done, but by their own or by, but only by the grace of God. Whereas the Lord's Supper is an ongoing confirmation and commitment of the believer and their interest in the Lord. It is a meal of faith, right? Herman Bavink, a Dutch Reformed theologian, put it this way. He said, there is a great difference between baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism is a sacrament of regeneration, a sacrament in which human is passive. The Lord's Supper is the sacrament of maturation. The sacrament of maturation in communion with Christ. The formation of the spiritual life. And it presupposes conscious and active conduct on the part of those who receive it. So it is our tradition that we look, therefore, for children to give a credible profession of faith before admitting them to the table. Now, I know this is a Super brief explanation of this. So if you have questions, see me after. But I wanted to highlight that point. But whether you are a child of the covenant or you are a seeker who's been warned, I don't want you to run away. I don't want you to push away. I don't want you to say, oh, this meal isn't for me, obviously. I'm, an, I'm excluded. Nobody wants me here. If you won't let me eat at the table, that's not my purpose. I want you to consider what it means to become a part of the family of God. I want you to desire the meal, but first desire Christ. Lay hold of him by faith. But let's look more specifically now at this meal, okay? Uh, we've, we've kind of danced around it. We've talked about it in its biblical theological framework. We've talked about sort of who's permitted to come to the table and who isn't. Now I want us to say, what is the meal all about? I think our confessional statements are really helpful. I would direct you there if you uh, want to do a little more reading and study. Uh, they carefully describe what the meal is and what it is not. But I want to approach it simply from a positive perspective, meaning that I'll touch on what it is not as I look at what it is. 
And that may sound kind of fuzzy, but what I'm trying to say is I want us to paint a picture of what the meal is rather than saying it's not this, it's not this, it's not this. I want to say this is what the meal is. And you'll notice when I gently say it's not this, it's not this, but we're going to look at it positively. All right. I want to approach it positively. Um, and I'm going to look at seven things that I want to highlight, seven things, aspects, if you will, of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. The first is that it is a sacrament. <laughs> that seems maybe obvious to you, but it, but it might not be. That word might have some baggage to you, but I just want to maybe undo some of the baggage and talk about what we mean when we say sacrament. First, if you're sitting there saying, yeah, but the Bible doesn't use the word sacrament, you're absolutely right, 100%. It doesn't use the word trinity either, um, and many other words that we use just simply to sort of categorize and understand God's word, okay? So what is a sacrament? Uh, in the Shorter Catechism, it describes it this way. A sacrament is a holy ordinance instituted by Christ, wherein by sensible signs Christ and all his benefits of the new covenant are represented, sealed, and applied to the believer. Let me rephrase that a little better, right? This is a visible sign of a spiritual reality. This is the gospel to us in physical form. This is the visible word instituted by Christ for our spiritual benefit. It is a means of grace that God confirms God's covenant promises to us. Okay? All right. All those words still just touching on things. It's a lot of Christianese, isn't it? A lot, of, a lot of theological language. We sometimes use it because we don't necessarily know how to explain things. So let's dig a little deeper. So it is a sacrament, holy ordinance instituted by Christ for our benefit. But not only is it a sacrament, it is instituted by Christ. I want to just think about this for a minute. This is one of the most beautiful things. The Lord Christ gives it to us. And it's for us. And it's for our benefit and good. It's not just some ritual the church has made up, but it is holy and it is ordained by Christ himself. He only did it with two things, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And we see this here in our text that the night before his death, he transforms the Passover picture into a remembrance of his sacrificial death, which is about to come. And he's saying, this is for you. Christ is saying, here, I have this gift and I want to give it to you. I'm going away. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to rise again, but I'm going to ascend to my heavenly father. And you have me here. I'm giving myself to you in this form, in this picture. And so when we come to the table, we come with open hands to receive a gift from our Savior every week, saying, here's a gift. I give it to you. It's myself. It's me. But the third thing, it's a sacrament. It's instituted by Christ. It's a sensible sign. It's a sensible sign. What does that mean? It is not an insignificant thing that Christ ordained means of communicating his grace to us with more than just words. Not, not less than words, 
Not, not less than the very foundation of, of our faith itself, the very word of God, but he gives it to us in more than just words. Why? Because we are sensible people, and I don't mean that you have good sense. Maybe some of you do. <laughs> what I mean is you are sensible people. You have touch and you have eyes that see and you have ears that hear and you have a tongue that tastes and you have a nose that smells and you have all these things and maybe you have less of those senses. It's possible, but you have senses. You've been made as physical creatures. And so God communicates to our senses, body and soul. Calvin and Calvinism is often caricatured as being very cerebral and overly intellectual, and that's an often, you know, you, you, maybe you're new to the Reformed faith and you're not used to 40-minute sermons on the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, and you think, man, they are all about head knowledge. Where's their experiential knowledge? Where do they come at us with, with feeling and gusto? And I just want to read something from Calvin that I think is pretty, pretty remarkable. He says this, He says, the purpose of this mystical blessing, speaking of the Lord's Supper, is namely to confirm for us the fact that the Lord's body was once for all so sacrificed for us that we may now feed upon it, and by feeding, feel in ourselves the working of that unique sacrifice. Calvin, what are you talking about feelings? I don't want feelings. I'm afraid of feelings. Here again, Calvin is urging us to feel in ourselves the working of that unique sacrifice. Not simply to remember in our minds, not less than that, but to feel. Yes, grounded in knowing the sacrifice first, but as we eat and as we drink, we feel, we see, we touch, we taste, we smell, we hear the gospel with our whole being not just our minds. So not only is it instituted by Christ as a sacrament sacrament, and is it a sensible sign applied to our senses, but fourthly, it is, in fact, a sign. So it's not neon. It doesn't glow orange. It doesn't point this way with a big arrow, but it is a sign. And it points to something. It points to Christ and his work. It's why in the other gospel accounts, not here, Mark, Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Just as the Passover was a sign that looked back at the Exodus and forward to the the, the once-for-all lamb, so now the Passover meal has been transformed that we might look back at Christ, the once-for-all Passover lamb who takes away our sins by his broken body and shed blood and look forward to the meal to come. It's a signpost, looking back at Jesus, looking forward at Jesus. It's always looking at Jesus, but it looks in those directions. And it has two elements, bread and wine specifically, that help us to understand the realities of Christ. Bread and wine are food and drink. They don't only remind us of the broken body of Christ with the bread as we break it, and the bloodshed that is physically represented through wine. But the meal is actually a picture of life. It's a picture of life. You think about what food is. Food is life. When you don't eat, you don't live. 
So this meal is a picture of life. But here's the catch. It's his life for your life. Every time you eat this meal, it's pointing to that reality that it's his life for your life. That he gives to you himself for you and you eat him. And as you're strengthened through the bread and just as you're strengthened through bread and wine, you are at the same time reminded that he was beaten and hung on the cross to die. His life for your life. And it's an ongoing sign to us all of that provision of Christ in the gospel. But note that no longer do we sacrifice a lamb, right? We don't have a lamb laid out on the the altar here. Instead, we enjoy a meal of bread and wine. Why? Because the sacrifice is done. Now is the time to eat. And we eat as pilgrims, gaining strength and vitality as we head to that wedding feast. So we are eating as pilgrims, and we're filling our souls and our hearts with Christ himself as we move on a journey to that final destination. Having performed a few weddings, I always find it quite remarkable the lengths to which a bride will go in their preparation of that day. Um, I've seen diets and exercises, tanning, all sorts of beautification products. I mean, the lengths on the day of the wedding when they go to put on a dress and do everything takes hours. In the Revelation passage that we read before about the wedding feast, John sees a vision of a bride prepared for her groom. At first, it says she prepared herself. But then the amazing thing is that it, it says that the groom provided for all that she needed for that day. These were the words. It says it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. As we eat this meal, it's part of that granting to us in preparation. It's for our beautification. It's for our that special day when we will be presented to Jesus, spotless and without blemish, righteous in robes of glory. And as we meet the, eat this meal now, what we're doing is that is for us to be more beautiful, to be strengthened and encouraged. And this brings me to my fifth aspect of the Lord's Supper. It's a sign, but it's also a seal. It's a bit trickier. What do you mean by a seal, Rob? Is that a animal that lives in the ocean? Yes, but not that kind of seal. This is talking about a seal that you might stamp on an envelope. It's particularly, we it can have in our minds, you imagine, if we could, we had a king and he took a, a, a wax and he poured a little hot wax, dripped it onto an envelope in which that in that side, that envelope, he had a grant giving to you saying, you can have up to half my kingdom or something like that. And you puts that, that signet ring that he has and he squishes it onto the seal of the envelope and he takes that envelope and he sends his courier out and he gives you this envelope and that now belongs to you and it's sealed. You open it up and that land grant is there and it points uh, all this stuff to you and the seal is the guarantee when somebody comes up and you, you say, I get half the kingdom, the king says. And you say, and someone says, no, you don't. I own this section of land. You take out that envelope and you show them the seal and the letter and you say, look, it's all mine. It's been promised to me. It's been guaranteed to me. 
It belongs to the receiver of that sealed letter. So is the Lord's Supper. It is an identifying mark of the king that guarantees to us all the blessings and benefits of King Jesus. So is the Lord's Supper a seal to us of all those beautiful promises. We, as we partake by faith of this meal, we are enjoying the benefits of Christ sealed for us. Now, the meal isn't the thing in itself, right? Neither was that little envelope with the stamp on it. But this seal, the actual guarantee is the blood of Christ sacrificed for us, the Lamb of God who was slain. What makes this mark, this seal of God and the sacrament potent is because it is the seal of Jesus wrought by his shedding blood that we might enjoy all the blessings of heaven, all the strength and power and blessing promised to us, belong to us, is guaranteed to us. And this meal is that physical reminder of what is ours in Christ, a guarantee. And what are some of those blessings? Salvation, forgiveness, the gift of the Holy Spirit, power over sin, comfort of his love, hope and joy and peace and all the fruit of the Spirit. They are ours. They are sealed to us and we eat those benefits and they're felt and realized in our whole body. Just as the benefits of physical food give us strength and nourishment, so this meal gives us strength and nourishment knowing that those things belong to us. And this is the reason it can be sealed to us. And it brings me to my sixth facet of the supper. I only have one more after this. You can make it. Sixth facet of this supper is communion. It's communion. More directly, it is an enjoyment of our union with Christ. After the supper recorded for us in the Gospel of John, as I mentioned, Jesus prayed for his disciples the most remarkable prayer. And in that prayer, he says of his disciples, and by extension, all those who follow him in his words, he says, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Most remarkable passage in all scripture in my mind. One of the most beautiful passages I've ever read. This idea that we are one with Christ. And that we are one with one another. And this is displayed as we eat this meal together. I don't know that there's a more awe-inspiring mystery than this. Christ in us, united in us, and all of us united together. When we commune together, we are physically living out our spiritual union and communion with Christ and with one another. We are feasting on Christ. We are sharing one loaf we are imbibing together from one cup as sharers in the suffering of our Savior. I don't know, as I said at the beginning, I don't know that there is a truth that is more needed today than this. 
We are one in Christ. We are called to live that out. Part of living that out happens as we come to the table together. Friend, if you have a grievance against your brother or sister or you have wronged them in some way, leave this behind. Be reconciled. This is the symbol of oneness, but go be one. Reconcile yourself one to another. It is in this union with Christ and one another that we show forth the power of God and salvation. But when we are bitterly divided, when there is schism in the church, when we put our political ideologies and anything else, financial status or race or mask and anti-mask nonsense, or any other dividing wall that we put up, we fail on some level to discern the body of Christ. This meal shows forth our ultimate union. Let us display that union with Christ and with one another in our love for one another. And as John said, as Jesus said in John, that'll be a witness to the world. Finally, and the seventh and last thing that I want to note is that this is a meal of faith. There are a couple things about this. First, I want to remind those onlookers and God-fearers, folks who have yet to publicly profess faith and be baptized, that this is a meal of faith. To drink it apart from faith affords you none of the benefits. In fact, it brings judgment because it makes a mockery of Christ's sacrifice. Having said that, Knowing that it sounds like some exclusive club, I, I, I do want to encourage you. In one sense, it is very exclusive. Only those who've professed faith, who've been baptized, who've identified themselves with Christ and his body can come forward to receive the supper. And that is exclusive in a sense. But on a whole other level, it is one of the most inclusive things that has ever existed. Anybody can come to Jesus. No matter what you've done, no matter who you are, no matter what crazy, terrible thing you hold inside of you that you think is unforgivable, Christ says, come. Rest in me. Trust in me. Find forgiveness in me. My grace is sufficient for you. It is open to all. He beckons you to believe on him to rest in his all-sufficient grace and mercy. He doesn't ask you to get your life together. He asks you to come to him. Believe that his shed blood and his rising again is sufficient to give you eternal life, to wash away your sins, and to set you free. But believers, this is also a meal from faith. I don't find it all that uncommon within the Reformed tradition, for people that I've run into who to feel an intense guilt and self-loathing on account of sin. It's sort of in part of us Calvinists. We always feel guilty. At least I do. And you can join me in that if you want, but I, I, I do. Sometimes we feel it to such an extent that we think we're in danger of eating and drinking judgment to ourselves because we are not worthy to come to the table, that we have sinned beyond the capacity of Christ's blood to cover our sin. But this is a meal from faith, meaning it is exactly for you, believer, who trusts in Jesus. You are a sinner, but you've been washed 
You've been forgiven. And this meal is for you. He's promised to never leave you or forsake you. He calls you to come to him from faith and be encouraged in the provision that he has for you. It's a gift of his grace. We're all needy sinners, beggars, poor, broken. And he beckons you to feast on him, to taste the goodness of his grace anew. It is a meal that in faith we feast on Jesus. He's not physically present. He's not physically among and around and under and through the meal. He's not absent either. It's not just a remembrance. It's not just a memorial. He is present spiritually. And as we eat this bread in faith, which is just bread, and as we drink this wine in faith, which is just grape juice currently, we feast on Jesus. We feast on him spiritually. And we are spiritually nourished. His physical body remains at the right hand of God until he returns, but he is spiritually present in this meal by faith. And so, believer, in your brokenness and your sin, come and be fed and be nourished and be strengthened and be encouraged and be united and be reminded of the great love for you in the Lord Jesus Christ. Come to Jesus. It is a profound mystery, this meal. But when we feast on it by faith, we enjoy the meal of the King, for we feast on Christ himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.